Thank you all so much for being here. I would really like for all of us to just get acquainted with one another and put some faces to the names that have been on our collective email chain for a few weeks now. So I'd love to just go around and say names, pronouns, the school you work at or are affiliated with and the union that you're a part of. So I'll start. I'm Jackie Sedley. My pronouns are she, her. I am the internal news director for KCSB, which is on UC Santa Barbara's campus. And I'm not affiliated with the union, but I've been covering the strike since it started in November. So now I will go to Dylan. Uh, that is the first person I can see on my screen. Um, hello, my name is Dylan Kupch. I'm a second year PhD student at UCLA. Um, formerly from UC Santa Barbara. Um, but yeah, um, I'm affiliated with both SRU and 2865. All right, welcome, Dylan. Thank you. Next, I'll go to Albert. Hi, everybody. I'm Albert DiBandetto. Um, my pronouns are he, him. I am a fifth year physics PhD student out at UC Merced, and I am um, part of both units, 2865 and SRU. All right, thank you, Albert. Next, we'll move to Heather. Howdy y'all, Heather Ringo, she, her, third year in the English department at UC Davis, and one of the founding members of uh, the 2865 Disability Justice Committee. Thank you, Heather. And now on to Cheyenne. Hi, I'm Cheyenne. I'm a fourth year PhD student in mathematics at UC Santa Cruz, and I am a member of uh, 2865. All right, thank you, Cheyenne. Now we'll move to Rowan. Hi, I'm Rowan. I'm a, uh, my pronouns are whatever. I don't care. Um, and I'm a fifth year PhD candidate at UC San Diego. And um, yeah, I'm affiliated with 2865. Great. Thank you. Now on to Aaron. I am Aaron. I am a sixth year PhD student in math at Santa Barbara. I am a member of both unions. I'm currently an SR, but I identify more with 2865 and I've done a lot more organizing work for 2865. All right, thank you. And then Jennifer. Hi, I'm Jennifer and pronouns are she, her. I'm a fifth year mechanical engineering PhD student at UC San Diego. I'm with both uh, the SRU and 2865. And then if you're just joining us, we're just going around and saying our names, pronouns, what university we work for or are affiliated with, and then the union that we are with. So I think the last person now is Samasa. What's up, y'all? Samasa, UC Irvine, 2865, uh, he, him. All right. And then I think we're waiting for one more person, but we can just go ahead and get started now. So. I'd really like to hear from each person on this call as briefly as you can, but not so brief that you feel like you're cutting yourself off, just about how you voted on the contract and what your main reasons were for why you decided to vote that way. I'm going to get started with Dylan. I voted no on both contracts. I don't think that any of the terms in the contracts were really sufficient. And I think there's major downgrades um, to the new contract from prior contracts from before. And I don't think it's anything that was like originally entailed in the strike or even prior and like what people need. All right, Albert. Um, I also voted no on both contracts. Um, just, I think, echoing the law of Dylan's points, um, I think the biggest reason for me, as someone that is not an international worker or a parent worker or disabled worker, um, the wages article was perhaps probably the most important for me. And so um, the the idea of deferred compensation and unequal pay for equal work at three slot campuses was a no-brainer for me. And um, I also stood in solidarity with a lot of the other workers, the international workers, the parent workers, and the disabled workers, because like Dylan mentioned, I, I don't think this was sufficient at all for any of that. Okay, thank you. On to Heather. I voted no because I believe in the union's potential for true solidarity, and both contracts threw our most marginalized colleagues under the bus. All right, on to Cheyenne. Uh, I voted no. I live in Santa Cruz, which probably should be enough explanation for why I voted no. Um, but on top of that, I'm a parent worker. I'm a single mom. Uh, my son is not insured by 
UC Santa Cruz. He's trans and Medi-Cal doesn't cover the gender affirming care that he requires. Um, I graduated my undergrad with no student loans and I will come out of my PhD program with $140,000 in debt just so I can pay my rent. All right, thank you, Cheyenne. On to Rowan. Yeah, when the, when the contract first came out, I was genuinely unsure about how I would vote. Um, but within a couple of days, uh, I ended up deciding to vote no. I think the main reason was that I, or the, like the sort of biggest, most central reason was that I felt like there were several articles that were actively misleading, that honestly portrayed uh, our union as having achieved wins that it did not. So in particular, I was really convinced by, uh, Heather Ringo gave a presentation about the way that it did not actually represent a win in terms of disability justice, but was presented as such. And to Cheyenne's point, I listened to parents talking about how the contract is presented as a win for parents in terms of dependent health care, even though in reality, almost no graduate students will be covered under the dependent health care. Um, to throw language. in there, their kids only count if they're 12. So if you have a child who's older than 12, they can't, yes. they won't even qualify. Yeah. And, and, on, well, and the other, the other key thing about that too, is that in order to qualify, you have to be a single parent who's making a certain amount, who's making too much to qualify for Medi-Cal, which is basically almost no one, as far as I know. It's a very, very, very small percentage of graduate students who are parents. So the end result is in these different places where the union portrayed things as wins when they were not, I felt like that was just lying to us. And I think that at the very least, we as a membership deserve to be told the truth. And I found it, honestly, I found the process around it also, and this, this sort of active deception, incredibly anti-democratic. And I found it really troubling in the way that it linked up to broader anti-democratic kind of strands within the union as a whole. Thank you, Rowan. Um, on to Aaron. I also voted no on both contracts. <laughs> um, uh, and I suppose I agree with everything everyone has said. Um, so things that people have not yet said, there was no back raise, which I thought kind of sucked because we just like rewarded the university for not bargaining in good faith for six months by not requiring them to give us a raise this year, which uh, that that sets a good precedent. I don't know. Uh, the raises, the bulk of the raises don't kick in for two years. And so I don't know. It's just the university continuing to play short term. <laughs> um, I, I don't like that it splits workers by campus because some of us get paid more. Kind of a divide and conquer sort of feeling to that. And I didn't like that there was no cost of living language. Um, I didn't like the wages weren't tied to cost of living because now, I mean, I don't know what will happen, but the university could well just raise our rents when they start paying us more. So I don't know that it'd be very hopeful, but we'll see what happens. All right. Thank you, Aaron. On to Jennifer. Hi. Um, yeah, I voted yes. Um, seems like I'm the only one here who voted yes. A friend of mine told me that you guys were organizing this and that you couldn't find a single person who voted yes. So I guess here I am. Um, I am really proud of the contract. I think that all of the points that have been made here are extremely valid. I was involved in organizing my department and my campus um, since before the strike. And I did not believe that our strike power was growing. I believed that it was decreasing. Um, I know that that's something that people disagree with me on. That's fine. Um, but my personal take, and especially now that we are actually getting our pay taken away from when we were working on the strike, I think indicates that a long haul strike would have been extremely difficult for many people, which I think wasn't something that was talked about. And I think that I understand, um, especially where Roman is coming from, that they felt they were being deceived and that some things are being presented as wins that were not. I, I disagree with you. I understand why you felt that way. Um, and I understand why other people might have felt that way. I was someone who was like leading these town hall meetings for my department and other departments trying to educate people. And I do think that there were gains made and they weren't 
enough, but they were more than I thought was possible. And so that's why I voted yes. And I encouraged other people to vote yes. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, on to Samasa now. Um, yeah, so I voted no on the contract. Um, I think the primary reason I would say is because we could have won more. We definitely could have won more. I think one thing people don't really understand is that if 40% of the people voting no on this contract meant that pretty much every single one of those people was ready to keep going and ready to escalate and ready to push. And the most sort of vibrant and imaginative forms of organizing I saw that were done pretty much autonomously were from people who were dissatisfied with the contract. Um, I think there was an overwhelming sort of sense of, uh, of whiteness. And of course, that doesn't just mean white people, but a sort of bureaucratic logic and mindset with regard to the purpose and meaning of the strike, the way that the quote unquote wins were communicated. And the last thing I'll say is that as a Black student who was pretty much used essentially as a tool by the union to sort of be a face for anti-policing organizing just to watch it all fall to shit before we even hit the bargaining table. I mean, just that was enough reason for me not to vote yes on the contract without all the other BS. Thank you. And finally, Jonathan, I know you hopped in a little late. That's absolutely fine. Um, if you want to just start off by saying your name, pronouns, the school that you're affiliated with and the union or unions you're affiliated with, that would be great. And then just following up with how you voted on the contract and why you chose to vote that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm John. I am at Berkeley. Um, and I'm a part of SRU. I voted no on the contract. And it, I guess, I mean, my, my reasons mainly align with actually what Rowan was saying just now. They mentioned how it was insulting in, in even in some ways, the way that some of these things were presented to us, particularly for me as, as someone who's expecting to be a parent within the next half year or so. Like the the idea that this health insurance thing was even was even like packaged and, and 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 given to us was I mean to be honest like it was it was almost worse than nothing it was like 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 it's a slap in the face not only from from UC obviously like UC was the one who proposed like something that effectively like actually doesn't cover basically anyone um but 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 then to see like um people sending emails in support of it and 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 highlighting this as a particular win which should sway me to vote yes. That was very uh, discomforting. I mean, as far as whether or not we could have done more, you know, I, I, I don't. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I, I don't primarily organize in union spaces. I'm not like familiar with all the rank and file politics and stuff like that. Um, I feel like if people, you know, if people voted no honestly, and then and it, that proved to be a large enough contingent, then that, I mean, that itself is a demonstration of how much strike power there is. The other, I think the other, and this is my last, this is my final note. The other thing that uh, ragged on me a little bit was the, the sort of depoliticization of a lot of the union campaign and the union organizing. Um, a lot of it uh, felt to me as if our direction was being determined in a sense by surveys, in a sense by like trying to tail what people felt among the general union membership rather than trying to uh, lead the union in a cohesive way, right? And rather than trying to, um, let's say, disseminate political education and so on in a way that takes the ideas of the union membership, but analyzes it in a cohesive and political framework. That's the other thing that I saw missing somewhat. All right, thank you, Jonathan. And then I, so obviously, as we all just realized throughout all of you talking there is only one yes voter here and that voter is jennifer and i really appreciate you being here obviously this has become a very contentious topic and i sought out many 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 yes voters and 
had one agree and then step back last minute. So you are the only brave soul that was willing to step up. And I really appreciate that. I would love to hear from you, Jennifer, why you think individuals that voted yes weren't willing to join and why it is considered brave or bold to join a conversation like this. Um, I guess I didn't. I mean, when I heard that I was the only yes vote, I feel very isolated. But I think that going forward, this is our union and that it doesn't matter how we voted. I I feel like all of us here today are working for the same goal. And I hope that people feel the same way as me. So, I mean, I really don't want the divides that I saw forming during the strike to become more entrenched, I would like them to become less entrenched. So that's kind of why I wanted to come. As for why I think people might have said no, I know on my campus, things got pretty toxic, I guess, towards the end. And I think a lot of um, the the rhetoric for people who voted no um, came from very emotionally driven places, which I think is very important because the way we feel and how we, um, you know, perceive what's going on is integral to like how this is affecting people's lives. So like the emotionally driven arguments are very important to hear, but there was a lot of like personal attacks. Like if you vote yes, you're throwing people under the bus. Like that's something that I think Heather said. And so there was a lot of emotional attacks. Whereas if you vote yes, it's not that we disagree. It's that you're a bad person. And I think that kind of communication, I understand why, that was something that people said. I don't know if I'm really making a lot of sense here, but I think that's definitely why people who voted yes don't really feel like coming into these spaces or they don't feel like coming into these spaces will be productive. They worry they won't be heard um, or they'll be disregarded because of these sort of more emotionally driven arguments. I guess that, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it absolutely does. Cheyenne, I see you have a hand up in response. Yeah, something that I just want to respond to in that because I know it was it was very it was a very emotional time for everybody. Um, but I certainly felt the same way that Jennifer felt about the yes campaign. I was getting blocked by bargaining team members on Twitter who refused to answer my questions when I was asking politely but firmly. Um, I was repeatedly told that I was obstinate, that I was just doing this to cause problems. I mean, I was, we were also pretty thoroughly attacked by yes voters. And like, again, right, not only were we attacked, but we were specifically called out and blocked by our elected representatives. Um, and so, you know, like certainly... I and I, you know, I can't speak to the the feeling on other campuses because Santa Cruz voted 80% no. So the feeling on this campus is pretty clear. Um, but you know, we certainly were feeling that same level of attack and discomfort from our yes vote colleagues. Not to say that. You know, we also weren't engaging in that. I'm not trying to diminish the experience that Jennifer had, but I just wanted to, you know, point out that certainly I don't think that no voters feel like they weren't harassed um, or told that we were wrong or told that we were being obstinate and just trying to derail the contract. We weren't trying to derail the contract. We believed we could get better. Mm. Rowan, I see you have your hand up. Yeah, I think for me, the idea that no voters were acting from emotionally driven places and sort of they, that there was a sort of the rational sort of realist view of the yes voters versus the sort of emotional appeal of the no voters. When you look at the trajectory of the strike, I think it becomes really hard to sustain that position. And that's because it's really clear that a lot of the union leadership went into this strike. A lot of the people that organized this strike really effectively and built numbers, like built power, did a great job building a huge number of people going into the strike and having a very successful strike authorization vote, right? There were huge successes at the beginning. Unfortunately, their theory of how our strike would win relied on the idea of the university immediately caving in the face of those raw numbers. And they were genuinely unprepared for 
not just a long haul strike, but even any strike lasting longer than two weeks. Um, and it was really clear because going into the into the quarter, at least on my campus and the, the leadership of my campus and also in the in the email sent to all union members, there was no focus, for example, on organizing grade withholding. Uh, the first email that talked about grade withholding came out very, very late. So it was clear to me at multiple points throughout, and I could honestly talk about this for like 20 minutes, so I'm going to try to be brief. Um, there were points where the bargaining team made moves that didn't make any sort of strategic or tactical sense. And the reason why they made those moves is because their theory of our power, where our power came from, was that only raw numbers mattered. And so because every day that went by, the number of raw people striking decreased that we were going to lose if we didn't try to get a contract immediately. And the good thing is the university did not immediately offer something that would have been even remotely plausible that we could have accepted. Ironically, because the university held such a strong line of continuing to put forth proposals that didn't, that were nowhere near any kind of substantive wage increase, it actually forced the bargaining team to get into this position of realizing that, oh, I guess we're going to need to keep going because the university isn't changing its tactics at all. So the end result being that it's hard for me to have this sort of dynamic between yes voters and the sort of people pushing for you know, maximizing the numbers were acting rationally. And then the people that were committed to striking for longer were acting irrationally and just out of emotions. I think if you look at the at the series of events, honestly, there are a lot of things that happened that it was really clear that the bargaining teams were really kind of fumbling about. And honestly, this played out in really emotional ways for me personally. So for example, I had a member of the bargaining team come to my to my picket line and tell me quite, quite straightforwardly that, um, me withholding my labor did not matter. That uh, grade withholding was going to have no effect on how the strike played out. That honestly, we needed to just concede as quickly as we could. And of course, what ended up happening is actually that the grade deadlines ended up mattering quite a bit. And the most substantive, substantive concessions really came at the end of the quarter, at the end of the semester. And I think, in other words, again and again and again, what I saw, and I came into this process with a really open, like, open mind, I, I thought of myself as like a swing voter on the contract. I was really prepared to back what the union was saying. I was actually pretty skeptical of some of the no voters arguments because I felt like there was a lot of a lot of heat. Um, but as I started to sort of think deeper about what the union was doing and the different moves and their strategic understanding of the situation, I started to realize like, oh, this has really kind of gone off the rails a little bit. And in the end, we did get some important victories. And I think it, it's important to acknowledge that. But I don't want anyone to take to look at this strike and what happened and be like, this is the exact model. Anyone who wants to be successful should copy this model exactly. Because I think there's a lot of reasons to think that's not the case. Thank you, Rowan. Albert, I see you have your hand up. Yeah, um, I think Rowan put it, I mean, super valid and to the point. Um, what I will say, though, on this idea is that I, I noticed a lot of the yes voters, especially when we got all the text messages uh, during the ratification period asking, will you vote yes and on these things and blah, blah, blah. Um, like even engaging in a conversation with them and telling them, oh, I'm voting no. Um, and like, you know, I'm voting no. Um, they would respond with, well, like, where do you think, like, do you have a plan for like staying on strike anymore? So it was already like, people had given up and um, like as I can I can speak for us here at Merced that we were ready to continue fighting. We went into the strike with this idea that it will take as long as it has to take because for example, the Columbia strike went on for nine weeks. It took five weeks for the university to give 2865 and SRU a contract that or rather, you know, the proposals that make up the contract. And it's still very much telling of how, like if we pushed on just a, maybe even one week longer um, during the break, by the way, which I don't think any of us were really around, um, we really could have gone a lot more out of it. And that's the most sobering part for me. So I have an issue with yes voters that have said, well, our strike is decreasing. Like the power of our strike is decreasing because people aren't showing up to pick it or 
whatever the reason might be. Strikes don't work that way. Strikes work because the longer you hold out, the more power you gain. That's that's the way it goes. And literally have to go one day longer than the university to get all the things that you're fighting for. So that's sort of that's my take sort of on on this topic. Yeah, I wanted to ask Jennifer if you had any response to any of that. Obviously, again, not to put you on the spot, it's unfortunate that you are the only person representing yes voters here, but I was curious if you if you had anything that you wanted to say. I mean, when I realized I was the only yes voter here, I decided that this isn't going to be me being interviewed. <laughs> um, um, I guess, like, I think that everything everyone has said here is extremely valid. Um, yeah, I, I, all of these points matter. I, I, I think, Albert, I think we disagree on strike power analysis, but I think that's probably could be its own podcast. So maybe we could address that, you know, another time. I do think that um, something with the, in terms of like people were ready to keep fighting. Um, that's not what I saw. And I wasn't ready to keep fighting. And um, that's another reason I voted. I voted yes. Um, so I think that's, you know, if that makes me a bad person, it makes me a bad person. But <laughs> I voted yes. So, yeah. I I really hope that you you feel like you do have the space to speak on what you observed on your own campus, because obviously every single experience is different. And I am curious what you may have observed at UC San Diego that made it seem as though individuals were not ready to continue fighting at that point. Yeah, so um, our picket line numbers decreased in terms of grade withholding. We did not have a lot of people withholding grades. Um, I wasn't um, acting as a TA, so I um, was withholding my research work, um, which has you know delayed my PhD process by at least a quarter by striking. It really damaged my relationship with my PI. And I know a lot of other people had really... Um, contentious relationships where there wasn't direct retaliation, but their relationship going forward is a lot worse than it was before the strike. Um, and so I think that when people were saying, well, just keep fighting, just keep fighting. Um, I don't think that they were, the people who were telling me that didn't really seem to listen when I told them that I couldn't keep going. And so when I was talking to people, the people who were doing the bulk of the organizing, which I think is not as fun or you know as sexy as the direct action you know the people who are like doing walkthroughs and going into labs and talking to people and trying to convince them to withhold grades we were very burnt out and the idea of coming back in winter quarter and trying to get the same people who were already not withholding grades to start doing this sort of work it it was not feasible for us um and so that's i think where i was getting this idea that we were not able to continue to fight and, and like I said, I, I think the contract was very good. I, I, you know, there's the narrative that we gave in. I think it was amazing. It was way better than I thought we were going to get. I was, I know people were upset when it passed. I was pleased when it passed. So I want to just reiterate that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Rowan, I'll quickly pass it over to you and then I'm going to move to my next question. Yeah, I just wanted to actually just agree with Jennifer on the thing about uh, SR, student researchers and how much of a burden that the strike put on them. Um, I think that that is real. I mean, I think that as a as a TA, it was a lot easier for me to withhold my labor because um, just like straightforwardly, it wasn't going to check. It wasn't going to directly hurt my progress. Um, it wasn't going to directly impact my research, and it wasn't going to directly impact my relationship with my PI either. So I think that the, those are those points are really valid, and that's why I I agree with what other people have said that I don't fault the people that voted yes in that in that regard, especially people that were SRs. I actually didn't vote in the SRU contract because of this because I didn't know I didn't feel quite comfortable voting no. It does bring up really important things though because the end result is going forward we have to figure out as a union that we have two different people who have really different work environments like TAs and we have student researchers, they have really different material conditions, right? The, the sort of the incentives on them are really different. And we have to figure out kind of 
how we're going to be an alliance, how we're going to be aligned, because the problem is just like quite straight, straightforwardly that uh, SRs have certain advantages that TAs don't get. Often their pay is much higher than the base wage, for example. Um, but the flip side is the case that TAs are actually um, more capable of striking. They have like more freedom to strike. And so that creates a really interesting tension. And I think that that's something we really kind of as a union have to hash out going forward. Thank you. So now moving on to, oh, yes, Jennifer. Yeah, just really quickly, Rowan, I totally agree with you about the SRs and TAs. Um, and I think that that's definitely something we need to spend the next two years talking about as a, as a union, how to figure this out, because I agree with you, like there were TAs who were ready to continue and someone who was working as an SR. But I don't want to point out that in my department, we are both like every other quarter will be TAs or SRs. So I really... I really hope that we can find some way to continue to keep the unions united because in many departments, people will be both TAs and SRs. So having two different timelines, two different contract negotiation cycles for someone who is the same person, um, I, I, I hope that we can find some way where we can have our strengths complement each other instead of like deciding to split up. I think that would be, you know, having more people together, I think everyone agrees is probably for the best if we can find a way. So I know the problem is surmountable, but it is an issue that I think we need to continue to talk about. Thank you for that. So I wanted to move into one logistical part of the contract that I'd spoken with Emily Fox at UCSB quite a bit about over the past few weeks. And it's this tiered wage system that's come up through this new contract so that some campuses will end up being paid more than others for the same work and that it's not entirely clear why, in particular UCLA, UC Berkeley, and then UCSF, the medical school. I was curious to hear from Dylan from UCLA as well as Jonathan, but starting with Dylan, do you have any explanation or feeling on your campus um, about how this how this might impact all of you and what that kind of created in terms of voting yes or no on your campus? So I think firstly the explanation behind UCSF, UC Berkeley, and UCLA was quite obvious to me. I was being like a prestige sort of tier um, and not like that's the only explanation that I think can kind of understand the UC's thinking because like housing costs obviously don't scale like that um, across campuses. Um, I think at LA, um, a lot of the the tier system was used like um, to try to get more members to vote yes on this contract. Um, and to, it, it sort of created like a divide where we're saying like, um, you know, think about yourselves first and like this, this wages like forget about any of the other campuses and I think it also relates to LA and Berkeley being very very big <laughs> um, campus I think the size of the campus really matters in that regard and I think it's also kind of divorced us a little bit from the conditions at other campuses because now we're getting paid for you know a, almost no reason a bit more than other campuses Cheyenne, I see your hands up. I just quickly want to go to Jonathan and see if he has anything to add coming from UC Berkeley, which is another school affected by this tiered wage system. Well, um, first, I, I, I really wa I want to echo what Dylan was just saying about, especially the part about how this was really a, a transparent attempt by the UC to apply a sort of divide and conquer strategy uh, to, to, to each of the campuses right so i think that's i i mean that's about the clearest explanation i mean besides the, the prestige thing which is which is sort of um uh one, one way that some people look at it but but i think from the uc's perspective it was really about divide and conquer that being said honestly among the yes voters and i think i know i and and i know a lot of them because i'm in a i mean that that comprises perhaps most of my social social circle actually i don't think that having that tiered wage system actually played a role much of a role in their decision to vote yes. So there's also that. Cheyenne. So something I just wanted to mention, because I actually heard this brought up a lot when um, people talk about the tiered system, because I had a lot of yes voters who were telling me that our initial ask was for a tiered wage system, um, because we initially asked for wages to be tied to cost of living. And uh, people were like, so then under cost of living, people aren't getting equal pay for equal work. 
you know, you in Santa Cruz are going to make more money than someone in Berkeley because of the cost of living in Santa Cruz. And that's not fair. And I just really wanted to like put out there that when we were asking for cost of living, we were asking for people to get equal pay for equal work, right? Tying wages to cost of living does actually ensure that people are getting equal pay for equal work. This tiered wage system doesn't account for equal pay for equal work. Now, someone doing exactly what I do in Berkeley, where it costs less money to live, gets paid more money than I do in Santa Cruz, where it costs more money to live. And I mean, like they were saying, right, I feel like it was just a very transparent move by the UC to divide and conquer. Those three schools make up most of the union. So if you can get those three schools on board, it doesn't matter what's happening at the other seven schools. So like, I just really wanted to address that because I've heard a lot of people be like, well, no voters actually want tiered wage systems. And we don't, that's not what tying wages to cost of living means. Right. Thank you. So now I would like to move on to talking about uh, different divides within voting. So I know that UC Santa Barbara, UC Merced, and UC Santa Cruz were the most unanimous in voting no across both unions for both contracts. We've talked a lot on KCSB's airwaves about the thoughts and feelings surrounding the strike on UCSB's campus, but I'm curious what led to such seemingly unified resistance to the contract over at UC Merced and UC Santa Cruz. So Albert, let's start with you at Merced. Can you give us a look into what was going on there and what led to such a high no voter turnout? Um, so I think it, it was twofold. Um, we went in, for one, we went to the strike with a vision that it would take as long as it would have to take. We fight as hard as we can, as long as we can. That was number one. Number two was, I think, our organizing. We went from um, a very small team of like four or five people, mainly like just the, the four bargaining team reps for both units here to a larger team um, over the course of gearing up for the strike. And even we saw a lot of engagement and people getting involved during the strike. When we, we, we knew that once this was coming, we had to sort of figure out a no vote campaign and we uh, kind of embarked on that. And we tried to hit, we have about a thousand workers here in both those units. So we hit about a thousand of them within the first three days of the contract ratification. And the goal was to try and get to them before um, the, uh, like UAW statewide would, since we already started to, see text messages and from their their campaign as well um so i i think that's really the the it was those two things and it was a lot of people you know were angry with the way bargaining had played out where things were already sort of conceded um a lot of the big asks were um sort of just dragged out from under us and people were just ready to keep going and ready to fight all right. Cheyenne, what about over in Santa Cruz, another campus that largely voted no? Well, I'd like to start what I'm about to say by saying that directly behind me is an office where a student lives, um, which is, you know, step one. Um, literally, I have colleagues living in their office. Um, please do not say that too much in public because I don't want them to get fired um, or get in trouble. Um, but that is the position we're in where, you know, I literally have colleagues who can't find a place that they can afford to live. Um, and we, I mean, there's wait lists for grad student housing. It can take two to three years to get into a spot. So even then, right, even the idea that you could live on the university is hard to wrap your head around. But, you know, here at Santa Cruz, we went on a wildcat strike two years ago. We, so Clearly at Santa Cruz, we were, I mean, we were ready to lose jobs. We were ready to do what we needed to do to make this happen. And the reason here at Santa Cruz that we overwhelmingly voted no is because we got more results out of a wildcat strike than we got out of this. So, I mean, you know, like we had a minority wildcat strike and we felt like we got better results out of a minority wildcat strike than out of a UC-wide 10 colleges on strike 
you know, it's just, we've been organizing for this at Santa Cruz for four years and it is literally a matter of life and death for people in Santa Cruz. I already know two people who are leaving our program this year. So now on the flip side of that, looking at campuses that had more resounding yes votes, um, that would be more in line with UC Berkeley, UC Davis, UC Irvine, and UC San Diego as well. Does anyone from any of those campuses want to speak to why they think their campus may have ended up skewing to a more resounding yes than no? I can talk for a moment because uh, I think UCSD actually had the most resounding yes vote on the contract. Um, which is interesting because uh, uh, several years ago, in, with the 2018 vote, that was not the case. It was actually a more one of the more critical ones. So that shift over time um, suggests that the factors might not be as stable and structural, especially when you look at the fact that like housing is also really expensive in the San Diego area. It's incredibly expensive. Now, one thing is true is that uh, UC San Diego has been building a lot of um, graduate student housing. So that does mitigate it a little bit, but the housing, the graduate student housing is also quite extensive. There's been a lot of uh, activism around that. I think to be quite frank, the main reason for the high vote in support is because our local union leadership was incredibly good at times deceptively um, about what was going on, about what needed to happen. And they were very, very organized in the way that they sort of made it seem to the entire campus that we needed to stop now and that this is the best we could ever get. And so they were incredibly sophisticated in that in that way. And they had been messaging, basically they had been planning for a very, very long time to take the first contract they could. And honestly, I think if my campus had been able to decide single-handedly, we would have taken a worse contract earlier in the process. There were multiple um, members of my union leadership that were actually pushing people to say, to accept the contract that was offered before the final one, a different one offered several, a couple of weeks earlier. And so it was really clear to me that like the, the union leadership went into this strike being like, we gotta get this done. We gotta get this in the pan. We gotta, you know, we gotta finish this as quickly as possible. And so they were really um, skilled at messaging in those regards. And I think that actually had a big impact in shifting what happened. Right, and just to clarify for listeners, Rowan, you're from UC San Diego. All right, um, Jonathan. Yeah, for UC Berkeley, honestly, I think the the reason the the, the uh, yes the yes votes broke down the way they did is because it largely broke down department by department, right? But each department had like union stewards and union point people, and uh, the key thing was that, and and this could also be a reflection of the department culture as well. But uh, in the largest departments, there the um, the key union people were yes voters. And so you could see that a lot of people um, voted yes, more, more or less because it was along the lines of their department, departmental um, consensus and uh, cohesion rather than, um, rather than necessarily uh, because they favored one narrative ideologically over another. I think that's, and, and, and to clarify, the biggest departments at uh, UC Berkeley are electrical engineering and computer science and uh, chemistry, I think. So those uh, those two are already also the highest paid departments, and 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 they naturally broke down along yes voting lines. Heather, I saw your hand next. Heather from UC Davis. Yeah, so I want to hedge what I'm going to say by uh, positioning myself that I am in a 2865 dominant department in English. Um, that being said, um, I can't speak to the conditions of other campuses, but at UC Davis, um, our bargaining team members and union leadership uh, were dominated by yes vote ideologies and held a tight rein, uh, as others have stated, on resources and communications. Um, in my experience, from what I witnessed, um, like Jennifer said, uh, there's a lot of unsexy work that's behind the scenes, the administrative stuff. I've been doing that for over a year, along with many disabled and other marginalized members. Um, and what I've seen is that dissent is punished, silenced, people are targeted for harassment. I've received emails uh, for speaking up, even in a measured data supported way that is unemotional. I've been called anti-union, a UC plant, a mole. Uh, Megan Lynch of UC Access Now has been forcibly removed from UC Davis meetings 
that she had a right to be in according to our bylaws. So speaking to the importance of political education that Jonathan and others touched upon earlier uh, in our discussion, it wasn't that there wasn't education available, cops off campus, autonomous groups, uh, the disability justice community rose to educate others. We were on the strike line providing teach-ins. However, uh, when we don't have access, as Megan Lynch calls it, uh, the keys to the car, uh, we've been trying to, for example, organize union-wide mutual aid. When we don't have the keys to the car to communicate that, when we literally are only allowed to say things that are in support of a yes vote, um, on another person on another campus, Connor Jackson specifically said that uh, the official union position is that no voters cannot have access to, for example, communications list. And so we have to ad hoc uh, make our own lists and uh, work from the ground up grassroots. That limits how much we can educate our colleagues, especially on issues that are affecting uh, marginalized community members. And I would argue that uh, it's very damaging when we say we should only do things that the majority support because who gets left behind? Right, Cheyenne. <clears throat> so I just had had two points, and the first one actually Heather just made, which is that we were explicitly told we could not use union resources to campaign for a no vote, which seems incredibly undemocratic to me. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that like the whole point of this is that union members get to decide on what they want. There was only one communication from the union that included arguments for the no vote. Otherwise, the communication from the union was pretty firmly yes, right? And then we were, like Heather said, having to grassroots organize. Um, you know, I'm at UC Santa Cruz, so we didn't really have to do all that much grassroots organizing here. But so I ended up reaching out to other schools. And, you know, I did calls and text banking for Berkeley and Davis and Santa Barbara just because we we were so hard up to get the resources that we needed to try to educate other union members on why we felt the way that we felt. And then, you know, to be told that we can't have that information by our own union is, I mean, that's really not only undemocratic, but it really feels like an attempt to silence union members. And I don't want to get into too much of the UAW politics, but this is a union that is known for conservatism and corruption. And it feels very much like we saw that in the microcosm. Dylan, your hand is up. Yeah, I'm at LA. And I guess I have a little bit of a unique perspective about organizing on two different campuses where I think that a lot of like the conditions that students face up across campuses are really the same. And it's not it's not something like just people go to LA and so they think differently about this contract. I think it's a lot about political education and what work has been put into political education. I know at LA, the environment is like rank and file. There's like a intense surveillance of rank and file members. Like I, I think like the moment I stepped onto the campus, I was already on the union blacklist. Um, and like throughout the whole strike, you know, wherever I went, I was monitored, like I could see like people watching who I was talking to and then coming in, butting into like conversations I'm having, like basically knowing that they're like unwelcome. <laughs> and uh, like that happened like throughout the whole strike and then like come, come to the vote, you know, the vote in a lot of ways is not even framed about like the contract itself, but it's framed about like how you feel about like your colleagues and like union leadership. Um, I, I, I know that there was a lot of people who voted on the contract itself, but there, I think there was also like this trust in like union leadership and like, um, in, yeah, intimidation, like a lot of that stuff. And then I think something not to be underestimated was the use of union resources in the contract and how a lot of the, the way that the vote itself was set up, you know, it wasn't on an equal playing field. Um, I know in my department, you know, I'm on the blacklist, so I never got a single like yes vote communication. Um, but I know like I was talking to my colleagues and like the moment that it was TA, there were um, text messages from the union spoke account to them, like, you know, within within a day. And it's like, you know, when we're trying to do this no vote campaign, we're having to use our own resources. You know, we're having to pay for everything ourselves um, and like taking the time to like set it all up and like losing valuable days in this effort. And I think that's really it's a lot harder to organize a no vote than a yes vote, I believe. All right, thank you for all of your contributions. So this is my last question or point to talk about. 
regardless of our opinions, the contract is ratified. Both of them are ratified. The strikes are over. I'd really like to hear from each of you how you plan to work within the contracts you've been given and or how you plan to continue to work for the changes that you wish to see. This is also your opportunity to add anything else that you would like to before we wrap up today. And I am going to start from the bottom of my screen now with Samasa from UC Irvine. Yeah, what do we do now? Um, as I said in the chat, all this talk about we need to come together, all of that is um, pretty sickening anti-Blackness. I myself, I'm, I'm essentially retired. I've been used, I've been thrown around. I've seen this whole thing bust. I've got real work to do. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to actually get us free. And as some people have nodded to, um, there's just so much that's just sucked out. I'm saying having to build our own list ourselves, having to set up stuff ourselves with not just no help from our elected union, but active trying to stop us. You know, I don't think you can really talk about the yes vote and the no vote sides as symmetrical because it's, it's just not. The yes voters had the power, they had the list, they had the resources. They could actually, you talk about like getting called out on Twitter and people being mean to you, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, but when you're an actual union steward or you know some other officer who controls when, we're even seeing this now at my campus, when are the uh, MMM meetings gonna be? And the people who were in the no vote camp or who have been essentially tagged damn near like getting red jacketed as no voters, their opinions are much less and even actively silenced or actively like, oh, this person's pushing for this. Yeah, we're not going to do that. So it's just, just completely, um, it's, it's very myopic to see these two sides as having the same sort of power as seeing the union as just this horizontal um, formation. Um, and yeah, I think moving forward, Collectively, though, I mean, I wish folks the best. <laughs> like, you know, I'm gonna be um, doing my thing and, and organizing the way I want to. You know, I'm definitely disabused that um, getting cops off campus or abolition is gonna have anything to do with UAW 2865 or um, whatever. Um, and yeah, I think overall, I mean, some good points have already been made. Like you know, thinking about differences between TAs and student researchers, you know, again, I fault union leadership for not thinking too deeply about that. The lack of political education, the lack of sort of strategizing, this fetishization of unity, majority, um, and just getting things done, if that doesn't stop, I mean, honestly, this isn't what we should do, but I, the union could really collapse because I'm not the only <laughs> Black person that's like, yeah, nah, this is done. But then here's the sad thing, is that when we leave, the next group of people are going to be oblivious, and then they're going to get, and, you know, that's like the, the crappy thing. Um, that's my two cents. All right. Thank you so much, Samasa. Now I'll move on to Jonathan from UC Berkeley. Yeah. You know, honestly, most of my organizing has always been outside of uh, union spaces, I think, and that's been for good reason. I think, as evidenced as by what's occurred over the last couple of months, I still like to think that there is. I, I mean, unions are good and they serve a purpose. I think. Um, I, I I don't think that purpose is radical or or or, or revolutionary in any way. Not in the twenty first century. Not not for like the last fifty years. Um, and I think that we have to take that into account when we think about what we want to get out of the union and what and, and and how we engage with the union. Because for me, I mean, my primary project is not a sort of reductive economism, right? Where we're just trying to trying to, you know, negotiate with the system and, and get more scraps off the table, as important as that is, right? It's to take the union and and have politics in command of it, right? Politics ought to be leading an organization like a union and and historically have played revolutionary roles. Unfortunately, I don't see that happening today, which is why I think my engagement with the union will be mainly to just you know stay plugged in, see what's going on, and see if there are people who might take the union as an entryway, union politics that is, as an entryway into 
uh, something more fundamentally revolutionary and radical. All right, thank you for being here, Jonathan. We'll work our way up through the screen still to Jennifer from UC San Diego. Hi, yeah, thanks. Um, so I think what I'm trying to do now, I'm a fifth year with the universe's blessing, I will be gone by the time there's next contract negotiation. So I've been working to develop a base of people who will be here the next time there's a contract negotiation to put specifically my department and the campus at large in a position where we can effectively have a stronger strike if that's what it takes. For example, Albert was talking about their campus that they came into the strike as with the mindset of as long as it takes, we'll be here. And definitely when I was trying to convince people to go on strike, I was like, please, it'll only be a week and it'll be fine. Like, just do it for a week. And like, please just trust me, like we can do it. And so getting to a point where we can actually bring our whole campus to and a mindset where we can have a stronger strike next time, I think is going to take two and a half years. And so that's what we'll be working on. There's a lot of work to be done in my department in terms of engaging with faculty. The departments on my campus that were more voting no had a lot of support from their faculty. And um, I've been talking with people on how they were able to achieve that sort of support and how I can implement that in my department so that we can be better next time. There's a lot of grievances we need to file, which are not fun, but that's what we'll be doing. Um, I think that's about it. All right. Thank you, Jennifer, for being here. On to Aaron from UC Santa Barbara. I'm hopefully going to be working on my like applications and thesis and stuff because I think I'm leaving this year. Union things? I don't know. I typically just do whatever other people aren't doing and need to be done. It's been most of my involvement in the last couple of years, at least, after stepping down from being a steward. On the topic of, like, I don't know, yes, campaign having access to things, our password to our email was changed at some point by statewide so we just like don't have access to our email i don't know if we've been given access to our email again but i don't really know what the plan is here for continued organizing yeah but i suppose just i suppose we're going to find out i don't know thank you aaron for being here on to rowan from uc san diego yeah, I think that the union should look at the events of the last few months and really realize what a threat the anti-democratic trends within the UAW are to the continued health of this union. So right now, literally right this moment, there is an election going on at the level at the sort of countrywide level for the UAW that was the federal government stepped in and forced the UAW to hold a democratic election where each member could vote. This is the first time it's ever happened that there is a vote of the entire membership on the overarching leadership of the UAW. And that should tell you, kind of tell you how deep this anti-democratic sort of ideology is within the DNA of this union, that it is, it has a fundamentally kind of like authoritarian kind of like logic in the way that it's run from a very high level. And it's going to be really important for our union to, in order for it to be continued to be successful, it's going to have to go in the opposite direction of that. And so here's an example. On the 2865 bargaining team, the number of bargaining members that were in contested elections, i.e. there were two candidates available and people voted between them, was one. So 18 other people did not run opposed. They just were elected just because they are the only person that signed up to, to do it. And the reason, part of the reason for this is that the union leadership, they will aggressively find, select particular people and encourage them to run and then not encourage anyone else. That creates a very untenable situation when the bargaining team is not reflective of in any way, shape or form, like not even remotely, right? I mean, much less a majority. I mean, honestly, like, like just like literally if there's no contested elections, you can't have a democratic union. The entire structure of authority and legitimacy breaks down. Like there's just like, literally you can't claim to speak for your union because you literally weren't even elected. And honestly, that's pathetic. So the union needs to work really hard. It needs to work just as hard as it does to get more members in order to get to the point where it actually is democratic also. Like that's also a really, really important goal. 
Thank you, Rowan. On to Cheyenne from UC Santa Cruz. So, you know, the first thing I want to say is I, I will be continuing to work with the union. Um, I mean, especially right here in Santa Cruz, our our local union group is pretty tight knit. We know what we want. We've been on strike before, um, but I will say in two and a half years, if I'm still here, I won't vote for it. I've seen what I get and it's not worth my time or my effort. I did not come here to go on strike every two years. Um, and that is the experience I have now had in my PhD program. I came here to get a PhD, but I do have work that I will continue to be doing to organize. And the first thing that I'm doing is working with a group of people to set up a timeline of the strike to share with incoming members to start building that institutional memory throughout the UC. So I'm working on that with a couple other no vote members. And then the other thing that I really took away from this personally was the amount of time that Columbia workers dedicated to us. Columbia students came and gave teach-ins about their long haul strike. They came, they held office hours for us. Like they held office hours to talk to UC students about what their strike was like. And they were very firmly, like they were very upset to see the way that the union was telling people that they their strike was unsuccessful. And so something for me is to pay that forward. So I'll be meeting with New York University uh, next week, actually, to discuss our strike, the Columbia strike, and why I think that they can do better than unionizing with UAW. Thank you for being here, Cheyenne. Now, Heather from UC Davis. Yeah, so I'll be around for a while. I'm a, I mean, inshallah, uh, <laughs> I'll be around for a while because I'm a third year. Uh, but my background, my first job, I was a journalist, and that impulse still sits in my soul sometimes. And so uh, I will be continuing to shine a light on the slimy parts of the union in order to bring that institutional memory, but also uh, use it as a tool. Um, there are a lot of newly mobilized members in varying positions. And for those that want to run, I definitely wouldn't advise it to anybody given the toxic environment that would be uh, unconscionable, I think. If they want to wrap around them and support them, especially if they are transparent justice oriented leaders that we can kind of change the ecosystem a little bit, achieve a better balance, perhaps like uh, Santa Cruz. Another thing is like others have said, I'll be voting for Sean Fain in the UAW international election. Uh, I think that the leadership at the top does have a cultural trickle down to those of us at the locals. If you have not yet received your ballot, regardless of whichever way you're going to vote, uh, uawvote.com or call 855-433-8683. I think you're supposed to request it by the 19th, but I'm sure if you do it, uh, you might be able to get a ballot still. The other thing I'm going to do is even though I should be completely disenfranchised and burned out, and I am because disabled workers, among others, as Samasa so uh, astutely pointed out, uh, we've been used as PR tokens for the union and then jettisoned as soon as it's inconvenient. Uh, I am aware of this fact. And this weird little optimist inside of me is like, maybe there's still hope and potential. But the other part of me is Fred Moten says to be in, but not of the university. My plan is to be in, but not of the union. Uh, they can't get rid of me. <laughs> uh, the union is one tool to be picked up and dropped like they did to us. Uh, it is not a religion to worship and which to pledge loyalty. But it is there and it is one tool to use in a bevy of other tools, including uh, my priority, which is community networks, organizing, mutual aid, working together for a brighter future at the UC and beyond for everybody, not just UAW workers. All right. Thank you, Heather. On to Albert from UC Merced. Yeah. Um, so I think like I'm a fifth year. Uh, I'm not graduating this year. I will be most likely graduating next academic year. So I will be here. And I was never as involved pre-strike or pre-organizing as I am now. And I want to continue fighting for a fair union for all. Part of this is, you know, like Heather said, um, you know, going about creating some institutional memory for um, people after this. And, um, you know, volunteering to be a sort of department steward so that way I can, you know, point people in the right direction and answer any questions with 
grievances and that sort of thing that might be popping up. So I'm still going to stay involved. And yeah, um, I think Heather also mentioned voting in the uh, the runoff election. That is like I see the importance now. First, I thought it was I, I didn't really care. Um, but after all this, I think it's very important. I'm going to urge my colleagues and friends to do the same. So, um, you know, after I'm gone, um, we'll see. We'll see where things go. Um, but I'm definitely going to continue keep to keep on fighting the good fight because I believe in the power of what we do. Great, thank you, Albert. And last but not least, Dylan from UCLA. Um, yeah, I guess this strike has um, sort of re <laughs> or it, it has sort of cemented the point for me that I think a lot of the current union leadership can't be trusted to negotiate for demands other than wages. Um, and I don't think I I will trust them. And I think in the weeks following the strike, I've seen like a regression in a lot of union practices, like the centralization of grievances and like the lack and like a lot of stewards basically telling people like opposite things of what's actually in the contract itself. Um, and I think the real way to sort of combat this, um, I, I still think the union is like a really powerful tool that we can use as grad students to actually get what we deserve at campus. Um, and I think the way to really combat a lot of what the union's undemocratic processes is I think that we need to create some sort of rank and file structure to, to like build up um, and have it on like, not just like this, like uh, grassroots, like makeshift, like no vote campaigns, but something more cemented that's able to tell people what's actually in the contract and how to actually do like a lot of these like political education um, and like grievance meetings and like all of these sort of um, processes. I mean, something that's independent of the union that's fighting for something more democratic. And so I think that I'm gonna work towards building something like that. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, everybody, so much for being here. I really, really appreciate that we were able to have a respectful, open conversation about all of this. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like listeners will learn a lot. And I just I just really appreciate all of you. So I will be in touch via email. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great rest of your Friday.